thinking there just before we start. If, if uh, maybe you, you remember me saying or heard me say before that I I think Pasquinello, gentle Savior, is probably really the most biblical invitation hymn that we sing. It's it's written so well and it's biblical. And but tonight I don't remember ever singing that song before a message. Um, I'm sure I have. I just don't remember. But it's also a perfect song for before a message. As Christ the Lord, through the Word, by His Spirit, passes by tonight, we are needy. We are beggars all. And so I'm going to pray here at the beginning rather than just a few minutes and pray that He not pass us by, that He remain with us tonight. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank You for the promise of forgiveness and righteousness and justification and reconciliation with You by virtue of the blood and righteousness of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Your Word is living and powerful. Christ walks these aisles tonight in the Word that is inspired and inerrant and infallible from You on these pages. So Father, I ask that You would help me preach, that You would grant to me the humility that I need that I do not possess to proclaim this Word in such a way that I not get in the way of it. I pray, Father, for everyone that hears that we would begin to understand that we must also enter preaching as worship, as the Word is proclaimed and as we sit ready to receive it. Help us process it. Help us understand it. Even a text like this one, which is so heavy on us, God, be merciful. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, when we're in James chapter 4 tonight, when wisdom from above, as he spoke of at the end of chapter 3 there, when that is lacking, and the wisdom of the world and of the flesh are abundant, there is, the Bible says, disorder and every vile practice in chapter 3, verse 16. Such things are the result of of jealousy and selfish ambition, period, fleshly desires. This includes quarrels and fights in the church. In fact, that's his whole context here. To insist on getting what we want, to insist on pursuing the fulfillment of the passions of our heart is at base level a refusal to love our neighbors that reflects our idolatry and our ongoing love for the world. We must submit ourselves and our passions to the Lord, who in His grace will satisfy our hearts that we may love one another as His church. So we pick up tonight in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. Now, very quickly, that applies to all quarrels and all fights. In context, however, this is mainly speaking to people as a church, to the congregations to which James is writing. He's going to go on and explain this further, but here he lays the groundwork for understanding what causes discord in the church, the reason that there are quarrels and fights so often. Usually, I think we put the reason or place the blame for trouble in the church outside of ourselves. 
know, it, it, it couldn't be us. It couldn't be our hearts. It has to be the systems that are in place. It has to be other people. It has to be the structure of things or who's over this or who's over that. It's what this person did to me or what this person said about me or what this person is doing or that person is doing. And so it's always outside. It's, it, that's why we use phrases like that really are technically not true. You make me so mad. Right? That's the first one that pops. That's impossible. We're, we're making a choice whether or not to get angry. True to the flow of his letters so far, James takes that type of thinking right out from under us. Where there are quarrels and fights in the body of Christ, where should we look first? In the mirror. Always in the mirror. Fleshly desires are the reason for conflict. Always. Why? Because our passions are at war within us, beloved. This goes back even to uh, part of what we were talking about this morning, that this is the experience of believers. He's writing this to the church. Our passions are currently actively at war within us. They are right this moment, right now. It's a blanket statement from Scripture itself. What I want is always launching an all-out assault for control of my heart and therefore everything around me. James does not say that what causes quarrels and fights among us, he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say it's, it's, it's maybe somebody else's difference of opinion. It's, it's not that someone else just doesn't understand or doesn't know something. That can, of course, be a part of conflict. But foundationally, it's that we want something different than what another person wants. Period. James teaches us that the passions of our flesh are not neutral and they're not good. They are, like the wisdom that does not come down from above, back in 3.15, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's how the Bible would label these things. Our passions must be brought under the Lordship of Christ in order for there to be peace in the church. You can't implement a program or a leadership structure or anything else that just brings peace to a church. What brings peace to a church is the transformed hearts of the people inside of it. Or... What brings discord and conflict and strife into a church is the hearts of the people inside it. We don't need to win. We don't need to get the majority. We don't need to push so that people see things our way and finally come around. That's one way to get peace. Put down dissenting opinions. Put down your enemies. But that's peace according to our terms. Peace on God's terms exists only when our selfish passions are being subdued by our Lord. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder, the Bible says. The sobering thing to remember here is that in 1 John 3, 15 through 17, for example, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. A murderer. Beloved, this is most likely not talking about taking someone's life, although this is also true in cases of physical murder. This is related to quarrels and fights in the church. In verse 1, when we don't get what we want, we hate the people that are keeping us from getting it or that we perceive are taking it from us. When we act that way, the Bible calls us murderers. Do we take the word that seriously? We do much more when we get angry enough than take our ball and go home. It's much worse than that. No, we'll scorch the earth to destroy someone else because we didn't get what we want. Don't 
Don't think that all that's happening in quarrels and fights in the church is that you merely have differences of opinions. That's the surface of what's happening. Beloved, we have passions at war with one another because our hearts are not satisfied with Jesus and will murder our opponent. We'll murder the person with the dissenting view by hating them. Anybody that gets in the way of what we want. That's what's behind all murder. All warring passions. Or warring passions are behind all murder. He goes on to say in verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He has just repeating in a different way what he said in verse 1. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That's interesting. James is saying the same thing under the framework of another sin. Not murder this time, but here's what's going on. Covetousness. Beloved, the whole Bible teaches that we're a mess. And that's why everything is a mess. Our mess moves out in concentric circles from inside to the literal state of the whole world because we want things. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. It is what uh, destroys marriages. It is what destroys friendships and relationships and churches in context. That's what's behind it. That's where the devil is mainly at work. And God reveals here that our hearts will only be satisfied to the degree that our passions are finally put down when we realize or believe by faith that in Him is all we could ever need or want. He's there for the receiving. Conflict in the church in, in the church is always, it is always evidence of dissatisfaction with Jesus and the lack of faith in Him that results. This is one of the ways we have to learn to think as the church, as believers, that that is what is going on in conflict. We have to go deeper than the surface, beloved, if we want to be a church that is authentic, right? And not just one that tries to maintain some fragile sort of artificial peace. Sometimes in our hearts, Jesus is not perceived to be bigger and better than the thing we desire, be it more money or a house or a partner or a program in the church or a position on a board or a committee or a tradition we value, etc., etc. Sometimes Jesus is not bigger to us than those things are. We need to know the corruption still residing in our own hearts and realize that our own passions, like our tongues, in chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, are flames waiting to burn down an entire forest. And he says here, we don't have what we need because we don't think God has it. That's why if we're not asking, we aren't asking. We could live in total satisfaction with all that God is for us in Christ, but we reject that because we'd rather have our desires met in this world. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive. So that's the next thing or another way to go with it. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This goes back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, and links the whole argument about wisdom and passions and faith and works together here in chapter 4. And the issue is this, beloved, we do not naturally possess the wisdom necessary to see things in light of the truth of God's Word because of our desires. That's true of every single person in this room, starting here in the pulpit. We are infected and corrupted by our fleshly passions. That's why we don't naturally 
do the word that we read in Roman or in uh, James chapter one, when we're invited in chapter one, verses five through eight to ask God for the wisdom to see and process things the right way, even our trials, the doubting that keeps us from receiving is revealed here in chapter four, verse three, to be a matter of our motivation in asking God for things. When we go to God for help and for provision, and the reason is that we want God to be a means to having our fleshly passions fulfilled, He doesn't give it. That's a staggering thing, a sobering thing. If I end up getting what I want apart from God, where did it come from? The doubt that God will come through that arises from our lack of wisdom from above Betrays that our hearts just want what God can do for us, not really God Himself. God Himself will purify and purge us of these things. But He isn't going to give us what will kill us. He isn't going to assist us in our spiritual suicide, beloved. When we are motivated by our warring passions, we ask wrongly for God's provision. What we want is to co-op God's power there, So that we get what we want and the other person or people do not get what they want. God has not baptized us into his son's death and raised us again to new life in order that we would still demand that we get what we want from this world. Now, we have to deal with what James says next because it's said to professing Christians. Okay, this is this is where James finally calls these congregations as he sees them. Congregations where their practice doesn't reflect the faith they say they possess. Look in verse 4. And and again, we need humility here to receive what God's Word is saying. You adulterous people. That's verses 1 through 3. That's adultery. Spiritual adultery. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world, that's what giving into my warring passions and demanding my way. That, that's, that's what this is. It's, it's adultery. It's friendship with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Giving in to our warring passions is what the world does. It makes it seem as though we're one of them, not one of His. So therefore, it has no place in the church is what James is saying. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no neutrality here. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's idolatry is painted as spiritual adultery. Isaiah 57, um, Ezekiel 22 and 23, those are just a few examples. James labels us and our issues with the same label Paul does. Idolatry. It all boils down to worshiping things other than God, usually, most often, ourselves and our desires. All sin has its root in the idolatry going on in our own hearts. We need to take the Bible seriously here. The inseparable bond there is between our passions, our desires, and idols. What we desire, James is saying, and we don't realize this, it's a God to us. We've made a God, a false God, out of what we desire to the point that we would murder to get it. 
to the point that we would cause conflict and strife to get it. James calls that, see, he says, you're worshiping the idol of self. That's what you're doing there. You become a friend of the world and therefore you are at enmity with God. He's not on your side. You're in conflict with Him. What would we do if our desires were like a God to us? Well, if we desire it enough or want it badly enough, we'd murder and hate and covet and fight and quarrel to get it. Because to keep us, to keep me from getting what I want, see, you're tearing down my God. I take that very personally. I get very angry, right? We need grace, beloved. We, we truly do need wisdom from above, if for nothing else than to know ourselves as the Bible knows us. It doesn't matter if what we desire isn't a bad thing, or even if it's a decent thing, or an indifferent thing, or a good thing, maybe. That, that is irrelevant. The issue is not the object. The issue is the passion, the desire in my heart for it when it isn't God, and the inferno that causes in His church. The Bible teaches that if we're willing to fight and hurt others and make demands until we get what we want to the degree that we would set a church on fire over it and ruin people over it and banish people over it, we're idolaters and friends of the world. If that's the case, James says, you Christians do understand if that's the case, if that's what you do, if that's the culture you're willing to facilitate, there's nothing in you that looks like you are what you profess to be. You look like enemies of God and friends of the world. That's what the text is teaching us. God will not be one of many masters, right? He, he won't be one of many gods. And we have to be willing. We need the wisdom from above to realize that that's what our passions are. Again, those, those are, they're gods to us. That's what, we, that's what we make of what we desire. It's a God. If we get it, we'll have salvation. We'll have contentment and fulfillment and our needs will be met, etc., etc. Since giving in to our passions is akin to friendship with the world, when we pursue them at any cost, we are at enmity with God. And beloved, we, we cannot serve two masters. And sometimes, usually, the other master fighting with God for control of us stares back at us every time we look in the mirror. We cannot be our own masters. God will not have it. That's what the Word is doing here. He's, he's backing us into a corner. Tony, all that is going on in the church when there's fighting and quarreling. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not me being melodramatic. It's not me making more of fights and quarrels than what they are. The Bible asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? James says it's this, you, your passions are at war within you. You desire things and you don't get them. So you'll walk over anybody to get them. And that's why there's conflict. So normally we're, we're justifying ourselves, excusing ourselves. So we, we can't see. We can't see when this is happening in us. We need the light of the Word to shine on us, reveal our hearts, so that we would repent Verse 5, or do you suppose, notice the way this goes here. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Like, did, did, does God tell us that, that He yearns over, He yearns to be the Lord over us? 
Do we think that's like just a throwaway statement that means nothing? James is asking. God's desire, which will be accomplished, is to be the benevolent master of the human soul, which is the seat of our desires and passions. And God will come on like Napoleon. He will break down our walls until we yield. Not because he's a maniacal dictator, but because God knows our souls were made to know rest only in him. He is our creator. It is a beautiful thing to remember when David is pondering the Lord in Psalm 139. It's not as though God created man with his hands and then stepped away because of reproduction. David still realizes it was you who formed me together in my inward parts. All the way from Adam to David, God is still making us. He still knows us perfectly, perfectly. So sometimes God may take from us what he knows is killing us. And it's an all-out war. Because we think our gods are giving us life. And we often have to learn what we should have learned when we were kids. You can't always get what you want. This is part of being a spiritually mature person. Sometimes it just doesn't go our way. And if we cannot accept this, if we're not willing to yield, don't think for one moment God is just going to stand by and let people batter the sheep unchecked. These are heavy and maybe even threatening words, aren't they? Because we all know how much we want what we want and the excuses we make and the games we will play and the way we will lie to ourselves and others to get them. We know how powerful our passions are. Lord, who will deliver us from this body of death? We all know how much certain things mean to us. I do. I have all kinds of things that aren't God that mean so much to me I'm willing to fight for them. Sometimes that would be worthwhile. Usually it's not, and never at the expense of God's people. Or my marriage, right? Or or as a father to my kids, things like this. So I ask us again, what, what do we do when God's Word lays us bare so that we see what we really are? So that we see ourselves as God sees us. What do we do? Because that's crushing. What do we do when we're crushed within by our own sin and the relentless pull of the world and the flesh and the devil? Beloved, we go back to the Gospel where He stands now to forgive us and make us new every single time. Verse 6. But He gives more grace. Good. Right? Good. Good. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James quotes Proverbs 3.34 there to tell us once more where the issue is in all of this. It's in our own hearts. And it turns out that giving into our passions to get what we want is nothing less than pure pride. It's love of self. It's overvalue of self. The issues in the church can be spiritually diagnosed and spiritually, biblically healed. 
We are the true idol. It's us, beloved. It's us. But God gives more grace. That's why He has told us, according to the passage, that while He opposes the proud, God is dead set against you and I in our pride. We say, yes, the King of the universe and Creator of all things, the Sovereign of everything says, no. He opposes the proud, but this same God gives grace to the humble. This is an invitation from God to us to yield and stop demanding our desires be met. It is a gracious invitation to yield here. This is what God does. He says to each, James says to each and every one of us, humble yourselves. What does he mean here? He means stop demanding that everyone else give in to your passions. Right? We, we, we get convinced that if, if we in a group of people want something, we should get it. And what does the Bible say? The, the Bible isn't making qualifications here. Especially not about man-made ideas of what's important. What he's saying is all of you, every single last one of you, stop. Humble yourselves don't give in to your own passions. You're, they're, they're at war within you. Beloved, God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. It's bruised reeds He doesn't break. It's smoldering wicks He doesn't snuff out. Hear God's word in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Right? Not to our own passions. We cannot trust ourselves. We cannot listen to ourselves. Resist the devil, verse 7, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil? Where did the devil come from? It's Christians. So we were talking about our warring passions and our desires that get out of hand and burn churches down. Beloved, where do we think that's coming from? Who do we think is just stirring the pot in the church all the time? Beloved, it is the adversary. Let us call it what it is. He hates the church and he knows that Jesus said they will know you by your love. If I can make it look like even you, even where people have been redeemed, don't love each other, I can, he thinks, win. The scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That doesn't just count in exorcisms, okay? At least that's what we think when we read a text like that. And it, it absolutely does if that was happening, right? Here, when do I need to resist the devil? When I want. That's when. That's, that's what's going on. Oh, beloved, if we, we I'm, I'm talking to myself here. If that's how we could learn to think. That, look, that's what's going on, Tony. That's what you're, you're experiencing right now. That the devil wants to rule you. And you've given him this heart of desires that he can just play with and have a field day with. 
because you don't trust in the Lord enough yet. That's who's at work. That's who's trying to destroy the church. We don't battle against flesh and blood. It's not the people in front of us. It's the way Satan is working with the heart inside of us. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's behind this, all of it. Remember chapter 1, verse 14. We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. So again, the devil cannot create out of nothing, but he will work better than anybody else with the unchecked passions of our heart to cause the church to burn itself down. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. These passions at war within us are literally the devil's playground. And so the first thing we have to do is realize that this is true and and humbly accept the fact that, okay, God, if that's how you are diagnosing me, not the preacher, not my brother or sister, not my spouse, not my sibling, whatever it is, this is how you diagnose me. This is how you diagnose all the quarrels and fights in my life and the reason for them. That I'm trapped in and I'm blinded by my own pride and the passions I pursue and the demands I make. Lord, have mercy on me. God, help me. And God humbling us is God repenting us. That's how He humbles us. The devil is feeding our passions like He feeds our minds and our mouths in chapter 3, if you remember. Pushing us, prodding us to pursue our desires at any cost. And God says, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Part of resisting the devil is repenting for the sin that has given him so much fuel. He will flee from us, particularly when when our hearts have nothing for him to work with. And a heart like that is exclusively the result of God's grace, making us humble as we seek his face. So the Bible says, look, you you are ruled by your passions. Even as believers, the, the mortal body, your faculties, your king's sin is still fighting for control over you. Rather than submitting to him, you must submit yourself, ourselves to God, because God gives more grace towards the humble. That, so in other words, that's what submission is to the Lord. It's humility. Because not submitting to the Lord is pride. Right? Now, listen to God invite us in now with the word of the gospel. Now that the word of the law and what we aren't doing that is good and what we are doing that is sinful. Now that the law has hit us and accused us and laid us bare once more. Look at verse 8. What does Jesus say to all us sinning Passions at war within us people that are hurting His church because of what we want so badly. Draw near to God in verse 8. How does He still want anything to do with us? What a God we have. What a promise is ours in the Gospel. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember back in chapter 1, it was a a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And a double-minded man in James is one who has faith, but who also doesn't. Who wants to be so at rest in God we can count our trials as joy. 
but also has trials partly because we want things other than God? Link verse 8 back to why our prayers for wisdom and understanding are not answered from chapter 1 verse 6 where it's the double-minded man that is unstable in all his ways, doubting when he asks. He wants to submit to God, but he also wants to submit to himself. And so his prayers, James tells us, they're tainted by our fleshly passions, which in turn creates doubt in us because we know that God has never promised to give us everything we want. So we're betraying ourselves when we pray. There's another voice in there. You know that you're just trying to use spiritual words to get what you want. Don't think God doesn't see that. And so we pray in doubt. That's why we, that's why we have to work so hard to pursue our passions. You gotta get other people involved. You gotta create a narrative. You, you gotta, you gotta do all this work because God is not on your side. creating doubt because God's word has given us no reason to believe he'll always give us what we want. James is linking this all together. Letting our passions get the best of us is sin, beloved. It means we're trying to serve two masters and we're arrogant and we're proud and we refuse to submit. We're friends of the world. We're committing spiritual adultery and we're idolaters. So he says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. There, there, there's a command. Right? Again, when, it's, when we talk about good works, we're, always, we're normally talking about great, grandiose things or things that you do in the church. And this would be a good work in light of Scripture. To be wretched and mourn and weep about the fact that my passions are at war within me and I like to let them win. Let your laughter, the laughter of pride, or the rejoicing because, hey, I won, I got my way. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, verse 10, and He will exalt you. The path to exaltation is not in the self. We must treat our sin seriously, beloved. That, that's what's happening. Rather than being proud and arrogant and loud and demanding our own way, let us be broken and covered in sackcloth and ashes over it until God's amazing grace exalts us once more out of the ash heap. This is the only way to peace within and the righteousness that flows from it in the church rather than fighting and quarrels. You remember verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3. Notice these next verses, the result of doing the word that we've been given in verses 8 through 10 here. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That is the gossip and accusations that cause fights and quarrels and the murmuring and the complaining that those those cause fights and quarrels. And they're depending on it. They're depending on it. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother. And here's what we're doing. Here's what all of us are doing right now with this text. Yeah. They speak evil against me. They judge me. It's you. It's you. Oh, I wish such and such was here so they could hear this. We always do, we, we always do that. The preacher does that every Sunday. The preacher's looking out there. Oh, well, I guess, you know, I have to hear this. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
Because what does God's law now say? You are justified. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That's what's happening in all this. So the whole thrust of this text is on the fact that fighting and quarreling in the church that is the result of unbridled warring passions within the hearts of professing Christians who are filled with pride is evil because it breaks the royal law James spoke of back in 2.8. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And when we pursue our own passions, not only are we committing idolatry against our God, we are hating and therefore murdering our brothers, not loving them. This is how the Bible diagnoses what we normally think is just all a part of the normal thing when you get people in a room together. And beloved, that's fine if we weren't talking about the church because this isn't a normal room and you and I aren't normal people. James's language here reflects that of our Lord Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and 12. Maybe you heard it. Judge not that you be not judged. For when the judgment, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. You will get as much leeway as you give, Jesus says there. Of course, he's pushing us to receive him as Savior, but that's the truth. Speaking evil against our brothers and sisters in Christ is an offense against the law and the lawgiver, who, by the way, is Christ himself. We don't want to mess with him. The person who hates the brother that God loves has basically taken the place of the law that has called us justified and righteous. We judge that as inadequate. God's judgment of us is off or that person that I'm. I hate for not giving me my way. Our judgment of them, God's judgment of them as his child is off. Forget that person. They're against me. They don't want what I want. You see what we've done? We're trying to be the law. We're trying to be the judge and the lawgiver. Because if you take what I want from me, you deserve to die. You don't deserve to be justified by God. And I don't care what happens to you. That is to establish ourselves as the giver of the law. And beloved, listen, that's blasphemy. Do we realize the extent of our sin just by demanding that we get our way no matter what it costs? All of this is happening. Right? Adultery, idolatry, enmity with God. He's not talking about like a, a grand slam type sin here. Like, yeah, okay, I, I don't talk, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't always say the right things, and sometimes I want what I want. But at least I'm not a, uh, you know, at least I'm not a, a pervert of some kind or something. Great, you, you, you shouldn't be, right? That's what we're talking about here. James is saying. You're, you're trying to stand in the place of God because you're that consumed that what you want is legitimate and you deserve it. And when a human thinks like that, there is no limit to the chaos they can and do cause. That's part of shepherding. You're, you're just you're, you're, you're putting out fires, potential things to burn it down. 
That's how important our passions are to us. They reveal not only that we're idolaters, but that we're insane in it and irrational. And we don't think clearly. Listen to people when they get mad that they're not getting something they wish they did. Listen to the words that come out of their mouths. It's not wise to judge and speak evil of those whom God has forgiven and justified. In the New Testament, Jesus as the Christ has been given divine authority to judge. He's the judge. And in Matthew 25, 31-46, He's the one that separates the sheep from the goats. And the primary thing that reveals a person to be a goat is whether love was extended to those who were in distress. Which, by the time we get to James 4, we realize, oh man, that's this church. These congregations. Right? They, they, they don't love the poor. They don't treat them well. They, they are, uh, don't have any check on teachers. Those that are teaching the Word, they're, they talk and gossip. They fight and quarrel. And the Father has given all judgment to the Son in John 5.22. So, when James speaks in verse 12 of he who is able to save and destroy he means for us to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10 28 do you remember don't fear the one that can only kill the body rather fear the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell when Jesus spoke those words they were pure threat right here the words of threat and promise are being spoken to believers who are currently flat out refusing to love their neighbors because of the control their passions have over them, particularly in the church. You, you could apply this text to marriages, again, to different relationships and all those things. Here, the context is in the church. So, beloved, we have to realize there's no force on earth that can quench the desire of our passions. Only the grace of God can set us free from them. Only the grace of God. What we need is a miracle for the power of our desires to be broken. We have to come, let the text kill you all the way to bring you to life. Only the grace of God can exalt us when we seek to exalt ourselves by getting what we want, we murder rather than love our neighbor. We perpetuate our frustration and dissatisfaction. We become perpetually angry, bitter, unsatisfiable people. And we chip away at our own faith and our own hope in Christ alone as though He's not enough. But we've been set free. There's no need to require from other people that they be for us or give to us what only God can be and what only God can give to a human being. A worldly church needs the grace of God. This, this is all about worldliness in the church and that's how Paul labels it. We usually think that means our opinions about homosexuality or something. And of course, worldliness includes that. But when the Bible labels it specifically, Worldliness in the church rests in the hearts of the people inside it. We need to remember this and humble ourselves, not compare ourselves to others. A worldly church needs the grace of God, and beloved, the grace of God is for the church. It's here. Draw near to God, 
he will draw near to you. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. So let us submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves before the Lord who always listens and, beloved, one way or the other, always answers. You and I need to remember tonight that we are loved. That when God diagnoses us that precisely, the result is His invitation to draw near to Him. In all our sin and in all our weakness and selfishness, He is not disgusted by us. That's what the blood of Jesus and His righteous robes laying over us do for us. When you see a child of your own, your own blood straying and making bad decisions and selfishly serving themselves and your heart breaks for them, if you and I who are evil know how to feel like that for our children, imagine how He feels for us. So this is a blanket invitation to every person in the church to lay down their arms, draw near to God and let Him draw near to you and just see, just taste and see that the Lord is good. And let us stop lying to ourselves and worshiping ourselves.